Good morning, Living Word Bible Church. Jacko here uh, from the Little City. This is where I work during the week. I have a little office space in Prospect, just off Prospect Road. You might hear at times a few road noises. I can't really stop the traffic. Uh, but um, happy Pentecost Sunday. Uh, today, in various church traditions, is Pentecost Sunday, uh, the day where we, as God's people, um, for years have celebrated uh, the day when God pours out his Holy Spirit. Uh, we remember that first day uh, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, where after Jesus has smashed sin and crushed death and he's risen to the right hand of the Father, he pours out the promised Holy Spirit, enabling men, women and kids through faith in Jesus to come back into relationship with God and God to dwell in and with his people forever, both now and to the end of the age. And so today I thought, what an opportunity to say, to just dwell on the work of God, and in particular, the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's what we're going to dwell on today. Uh, the readings were Ezekiel 36 and uh, part of Galatians 5. I'm not going to kind of be glued to a particular Bible passage today. Uh, you might want to note down the Bible passages that I check in and out of, um, and you might want to chase them up later. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful and prayerful that today God will speak to us um, wherever we are at. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you expect when you come to this moment um, in this form of gathering online or normally when you're gathered in person. I don't know what you expect to happen when God's Word is opened and studied and taught like this. Um, I'm not sure whether you anticipate hearing good things from God or getting some refreshment. I'm not sure what you're looking for or hoping for God to say to you, Today, um, but before I do pray, I just want to give you a moment in the quiet of your own heart to bring your heart, your life, your circumstances, your joys, your sorrows to God in prayer on your own. I want you to ask God perhaps that he would speak a word to you this morning um, and, and, and comfort you, um, challenge you, discomfort you, refresh, transform you. I don't know what you need to hear today, but take a moment now in the quiet of your own heart just to come before the Lord. And then I'll pray and then we'll get stuck into the message. Father, we do pray that by your spirit and through your word that this morning we would, would hear you speak to us. Uh, Father, that you would take your word uh, and, and drive it into our hearts and into our souls, into our minds and our hearts, that as we hear your word this morning, uh, picked up by your Holy Spirit, that, Father, we would by your word and through your spirit hear, see and love Jesus and afresh commit ourselves to the work that you're doing in the world, um, each in us individually and in our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. How would you know that God's Spirit was in you? How would you know, how do you know that God's Spirit is in you? It's an important question, but not always 
a question that's easy to answer or even speak about. I mean, you can't see the Holy Spirit, right? If you, you know, you walk, it's not like you can walk down the street or walk across the road to Tea Tree Plaza or something like that and, you know, and spot someone and say, oh, wow, they've got that holy glow, they've got the Holy Spirit, or actually you're looking a little bit dull, I'm not sure you've got it. It's not easy as that. So questions about the Spirit in your life for many people can actually be difficult to answer, but, you know, we need to be able to answer it. Not least because of what Jesus says in John chapter 3. Jesus is picking up the language of Ezekiel chapter 36 that we just had read. Um, And he says that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again by water and by the Spirit. You need to know, I need to know if God's Spirit is at work in me. We really do. Um, A German theologian named Wolfhard Pannenberg um, had quite a, an amazing experience of the Holy Spirit when he first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he writes this. This is his kind of testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, The single most important experience occurred in early January 1945 when I was 16 years old. On a lonely two-hour walk home from my piano lesson, seeing an otherwise ordinary sunset, I was suddenly flooded by light and absorbed in a sea of light, which, although it didn't extinguish the humble awareness of my finite existence, overflowed the barriers that normally separate us from the surrounding world. I did not know at the time that January 6th was the day of Epiphany, nor did I realise that in that moment Jesus Christ had claimed my life as a witness to the transfiguration of this world in the illuminating power and judgment of his glory. But there began a period of craving to understand the meaning of life, and since philosophy did not seem to offer the ultimate answers to such a quest, I finally decided to probe the Christian tradition more seriously than I had considered worthwhile before. And you go, wow, that sounds extraordinary. I mean, I know it's full of flowery theologian language, but what an incredible work of God. Bathed in light and in some ways connected to something bigger than himself, produced this extraordinary awakening in his heart by God, this new desire to know God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what if, like me, you haven't had an experience like Wolfhard Pannenberg? If you haven't had an experience like that, how do you recognise the spirit of work in your life? Christian communities, right, of the past have sought to work this one out. So um, Christian communities of the 17th century century in New England in the US um, wrestled with this issue. They had a Puritan heritage that placed a really high value on having a conversion experience and a conversion story as if so to give testimony to the work of the Spirit in your life. But the issue was, as generations passed, grandchildren and children grew up, kind of not ever really having a significant conversion experience or story to attest to the Spirit's work in their life. One solution they came up with was this. It was called the Halfway Covenant, done in Boston. So when these young people grew up and confessed faith, they were considered members of the church, but they weren't allowed to be voting members of the church and they weren't allowed to come to the Lord's table and celebrate communion. The problem was, though, it was like they were thought to have had a a half-pregnant experience of the Spirit or that, you know, they had a half-pregnant view of the Holy Spirit. That is, if you don't really get what I'm saying, you know, like you can't be half-pregnant. You're either fully pregnant or you're not pregnant. That's the reality. 
But that's the way it left these people. Unclear. Did they have the Spirit or not? Were they Christians? Were they in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? I don't know. Perhaps that's you today. Um, A little unsure of how to speak of the Spirit's work in your life. Maybe a little unsure if you're a member of God's kingdom. How would you know if the Spirit of God is at work in you? Well, to answer it properly, right, we need to kind of take a step behind our personal experiences and see who the Spirit is, God the Spirit. We need to understand the nature of his work. What does the Spirit do as a member of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do in that triune God? Well, here it is, right? Here is what I believe the Spirit is all about. He is the self-effacing power of God. And you go, that doesn't sound very catchy, or that sounds a little bit confusing. Um, He is the self-effacing power of God. We probably need to unpack that statement a little bit, I think you would agree. See, the Spirit is entirely self-effacing. He doesn't want you to focus on Him. He wants you to look somewhere else. That is, He always points to the Father and to the Son for their glory and for their praise. The Spirit never seeks glory for Himself. So the way the Bible speaks about the Holy Spirit is it points to his humility and how he does this work of glorifying the Father and the Son. So in the New Testament, you do a bit of a study of the Holy Spirit and the names for the Holy Spirit, you find this, right? The Holy Spirit is mentioned as the Holy Spirit just under 100 times. He's known as the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of God roughly 50 times. Now here's the interesting thing to note. In the New Testament... We never hear this kind of talk, the Father of the Spirit or the Jesus of the Spirit. They're never connected in that way, but the Spirit is. The Spirit doesn't act independently or by himself. Um, He never seeks to have authority over. He always places himself under. And his goal is to glorify the Father and glorify the Son. His role is not to do new work, but to reinforce their work. So Jesus says, John chapter 14, verse 26, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Jesus says, the next chapter, John chapter 15, verse 26, When the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, the Counsel of Comforter comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. What's the Spirit doing? He is humbly, he is self-effacingly reinforcing what the Son has already done and what the Son Jesus has already said so that the Son would get the glory. Another chapter later, so we've done John 14, 15, now 16, Jesus says this, When he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why, this is Jesus saying, I said that the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus, sorry, the Spirit is constantly seeking glory for the Son. That's the pattern of the Spirit's work. But the remarkable thing is, right, even though the Spirit is constantly kind of deflecting the glory and the praise to the Father and the Son, it doesn't diminish the power of the Holy Spirit. 
doesn't diminish his power in any way, shape or form. If you're familiar with the Nicene Creed, um, it affirms this about the Holy Spirit, his power. Listen to this. And we believe, Nicene Creed, written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, embraced by Christians throughout the history, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, who the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and he, with the Father and the Son, is worshipped and glorified. The Spirit he has spoken through the prophets. The Holy Spirit has power. He is the Lord. He is the giver of life. Um, Jesus in John chapter 6 says, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. You see, he gives life and, and, and he is inseparably connected to the word, to the Lord Jesus, in the same way that breath is tied to speech. So the Hebrew word um, ruach means wind. It means breath. It also means spirit. In the same way that you can't speak, I can't speak without exhaling air, so the spirit can't work without the the word. And the Holy Spirit, with the word, gives life. First of all, power to give life in creation. So flick right back to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. God's breath, his ruach, hovers over the deep darkness and then words come out and gone. You know, creation happens. Life comes into the world. The psalmist in Psalm 104 verse 30 exclaims, When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. And so when we look at the wonders of creation, but also the rich diversity of human cultural expression and the achievements we see, in all of that we see something of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, his life-giving work. He's got power in creation, bringing life. He's also got power in bringing new life to dead sinners like you and me. Power of new life in the new creation. Because he takes the work of the Father and the work of the Son and applies it to individuals like you and me, who without him are dead and lost in our sins and our transgressions. But John Calvin points out a problem, right? He says, as long as Christ remains outside of me, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and all that he has done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value. In other words, what Calvin is saying, yeah, it's great that Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago for the sins of the world and that he's risen again to destroy death and now he's risen to be in glory with the Father at his right hand. But if I have no connection with him, if I'm not in Christ, then it's... It's it's useless. And if I'm drowning, I don't need to know about the work of lifesavers and what they could do for me. I need a lifesaver when I'm at the beach and I'm caught in a rip. I need the lifesaver to connect with me. And the Spirit has the power to bring new life to by uniting sinful people who then become believers in Jesus to all that Jesus has done and will do. That's why Jesus prays in John chapter 17, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. It's that sense of unity and being drawn together. It's the new life that Jesus spoke about as being utterly necessary in John chapter 3, being born again of the water and the spirit. 
And yet with all the power the Holy Spirit has, he still manages to be entirely humble, not seeking glory for himself. Um, Some have (coughs) described the self-effacing power of the Holy Spirit like a window. Um, You know, so the idea, the design of the window is that you would be sitting there on one side of the window and you look through the window and your eyes are drawn to the, to the view on the other side, what is on the other side of the window, allowing you access to see the, the beauty of, I don't know, the rolling hills of the Adelaide Hills or something like that. The idea of a window isn't just to dwell on the window, you know, look at the nice window pane, oh, I like that kind of glass. That's not the idea. The, the window is there that you would look through it to what's beyond it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't look at the window, look at what I'm pointing to. Similarly, it's a bit like you know, lighting on a stage at a concert. One day in the future, we hope that we'll be able to go back to the festival centre, back to the new Her Majesty's Theatre in the city and go and see a play or a concert or whatever it might be. Now, when we go to a concert, right, we don't go to a concert, at least I don't, maybe you do, but I don't think we do. We go to the concert to see what is on the stage and that stage is illuminated by a lighting rack and spotlights on different people. Now, we don't go to the concert and sort of stare at the lighting rack or stare at the spotlight and go, that's a great spotlight, look what they've done with that. No, we go there to see what's on the stage, what the lights are pointing to or illuminating. That's what the Holy Spirit does. With all of his power, the Holy Spirit doesn't want to be noticed. He wants the Son to be seen and the Father to be glorified. And that's a wonderfully subversive message, I think you'll agree, for us today. Having power, but not wanting the attention. Sort of grates with us, doesn't it? We all kind of want a bit of fame, 15 minutes of fame. That's what we kind of want. I mean, historically, right, you would ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they would say things like, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a you know, I want to be a nurse, I want to be an astronaut, a firefighter, I want to be in the Navy, I don't know, what it might, whatever it might be. You know, and then they say, maybe, maybe I could be really good, maybe even famous, like world famous at doing one of those things. Now you ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I just want to be famous. That's all I want. I think reality television has kind of impacted us in that way. Not that I hate reality television altogether. Right? That's our instinct. We want power, often for the sake of drawing attention to ourselves. That's the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. He has power, but he doesn't want the attention. I think we could learn well from the person of the Holy Spirit. Power can go with humility. Humility, don't misunderstand, is not pretending to be less than you are. Um, That's false humility. It's silly. People can see often straight through that. No, true humility, right, is recognising, yeah, I I have some importance, but I'm not going to use that importance over people. In fact, I'm going to use my importance to actually put other people's desires and and thoughts and needs before my own. That's humility. It's putting others, even if they are less important than you are, putting their concerns before my own priority list. That's that's humility. You see, we honour God the Father by coming to him directly in prayer because he has all the authority and he will provide. We we honour Jesus the Son by trusting him and and talking about him. We honour the self-effacing, humble Holy Spirit by heaping praise on Jesus and giving as much glory to the Father as we can manage. That's what he wants. 
So the original question, right, how do you know if the Holy Spirit is at work and alive in you? What's the answer? Well, you join in his work. You join in his work. If you self-effacingly acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ and his power in your life, then I think there is good evidence and clear sign that you are united to him. And so today I just want to draw out this morning just three signs of what it means, what it looks like to have the Holy Spirit at work in you. Three of the great works that he does that we ought to be doing as well. And the three things are these, creating fellowship, uh, illuminating Jesus, and sanctifying sinners. So firstly, creating fellowship. The work of the Holy Spirit is to unite us, you and me, to the Godhead and to each other and therefore create fellowship. So we are as close to God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are to one another. That is extraordinary. As Jesus said regarding the spirit of truth in John chapter 14, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. It's a remarkable thing, I think, that the Holy Spirit would move into renovators' delights like you and me, you know, people who, I don't know, are inclined to immorality and impurity and idolatry, to to anger and lust and greed and jealousy. You You can complete the list. And with all those things in mind, he gives us uninhibited fellowship with God. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't send a, uh, an extra or a stunt double. No, he, he personally comes and dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. There are no barriers because God himself slums it. He makes us children, Romans chapter 8. And if we had less a sense of entitlement, I think we would be utterly shocked and stunned by that act of inclusion personally. I love the story of the young boy, um, about five years old, who once just strode off Pennsylvania Avenue into the White House near the centre and symbol of power in the world. He strode past the guards. He went through every layer of the security in the building. He went up to the door of the Oval Office, just swung it open, walked past the couches, up to the desk, and then climbed up onto the lap of the president. Of course, I'm talking about John F. Kennedy Jr., who would just go in and sit on his dad's lap. And it's a picture of us, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a picture of our unlimited access to our Heavenly Father because of the Holy Spirit and his work. But you know what? Not only does the Spirit unite us to the Godhead so that we have this uninhibited perfect relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, the Holy Spirit also unites us to one another, God's people. Our fellowship is on the same basis as God's fellowship. Sometimes, I don't know, when I think of the word fellowship, I think that can be a little bit of a kind of creepy Christianese word. I sometimes think fellowship's this kind of weird, airy-fairy, kind of mystical, hard-to-pin-down untangible kind of thing that we have between each other. Um, The reality is it's not. Um, God's fellowship with himself is based on mutual acts of love, the Son loving the Father, the Father loving the Son, the Spirit loving the Son, all those mutual acts of love. The Father, right, the way the Father serves the Son, that's their fellowship. 
the way they love each other in practice. Fellowship with God and with us is not a mystical experience. It's concrete acts of love. This is how Jesus puts it, right? John chapter 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You will also live. On that day, you will realise that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. How will you realise that? Jesus goes on, verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. You see, it's God's active presence in us that brings us into closer fellowship with each other. It's an obedience to Jesus' commands in our actions that we know we have fellowship, not some mystical experience. And that draws us into fellowship with one another in action, practical acts of love across culture, across ages, across status, beyond geography. We're connected not mystically but through acts of love and care for one another, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I don't know, think of missionaries that you might support. We don't have this mystical relationship with them, right? You know, if you pray for them, if you send emails to them, if you occasionally send care packages of Vegemite and Tim Tams and books and things like that, you have fellowship with them. How? Through the acts of love that you do for them. And we get the joy. I I feel like I get the joy of seeing these things often, right? In our experience just recently with the whole COVID-19 thing and isolation and everyone being scattered, um, one day about two months ago, we got this knock at the door and there was this person from our church, Maggie, standing there with this homemade, beautiful, baked, massive chicken pie and a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, you know, handed over to us. And then I looked across the road and there's her husband, Tom, in the car and another person just grinning like, hey, we're with you. Keep charging on. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep washing your hands. Like all this stuff. Like it was practical acts of life. It wasn't a mystical relationship. There was an expression of it empowered by the Holy Spirit. Practical love. That's fellowship. Signs of the Spirit at work amongst us. And that fellowship, right, that inspiration for practical acts of love is created by the second feature, the illuminating work of the illumination of Jesus. What does the Spirit do? He creates fellowship. Secondly, he's in the business of illuminating Jesus. He wants to make Jesus look good. The Spirit enables you to be self-effacing and stop thinking that you're the Lord of everything, but actually that Jesus is the Lord of everything and even your life. It's like a light being switched on. That's the illumination where we are empowered by God to, to, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and the overflow of that to love our neighbour as ourselves. I mean, why is it that the people you went to youth group with growing up All who heard the same Bible talks as you on Friday nights aren't all Christians. It's um, not simply an intellectual issue, but the problem is a moral and spiritual one. You see, Romans 1 tells us that naturally we want to suppress the truth by our deeds of wickedness. 
John 3 says we prefer to, prefer to be in the darkness than in the light. Why? Because if you come into the light, you get seen and you're exposed. And so we prefer to, to hide all those things that bring us shame and cause us embarrassment. So people keep away from the true light that came into the world. What we need is the Spirit's illuminating work to flick on the light so that we would see Jesus in all his beauty and wonder and forgiveness and love and grace and mercy and allow ourselves to be exposed in that way. Augustine writes, and Augustine said, that you can't know things without a desire for them. That is, you've got to love stuff if you're going to find out about that stuff. If you don't love it, you won't explore it any further. See, we can't hear God's words unless, first of all, the Spirit puts in us a love for him. Because the Word and the Spirit are never separated. I can't acknowledge, we can't acknowledge the Lord Jesus without that happening. And it needs to happen to each one of us personally. The Sydney Morning Herald a few years ago um, reported that among Australians who go to church, 21% of Australians who go to church read their Bible every day. 14% said, I read my Bible a few times a week. 6% said, just once per week. I'm not going to ask you to phone in or write a message below and tell us what category you fit into, but hey, you know, at least you're part of the 6% because you've opened your Bible today here at Church Online. Shoot for 40%, right, by opening your Bible tomorrow. But, now obviously, I am all for, I'm, I'm pro, read your Bible more, read your Bible more. But if it's just for in, like improving stats, that's useless. It's not about a mechanical exercise, it's about a relational one. Before we come to the Word, we need to ask God, by his spirit, to work in our hearts and minds to comfort us, to discomfort us, to refresh us, to transform us, to uplift us. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit in you? Well, if you can call on Jesus as Lord, and if you want to get to know him better through his word, if the spotlight is on Jesus in your life and not on you, then there is evidence that the spirit is at work. And then the third and the final work to look out for is sanctifying sinners. Sanctifying sinners. Create the Spirit's work is to create fellowship. Spirit's work is illuminating Jesus. Thirdly, sanctifying sinners. Now, sanctifying, that's an uber religious kind of word. It just means to set aside um, for a special purpose. In terms of the Spirit's work, right, he sets us aside for the purpose of living out the truth that Jesus is the Lord. So the Spirit inside us lets us do the work, the Lord's work, that is of of loving other people. You know, occasionally, right, sometimes the God, the Spirit of God will come in a particularly massive endowment of kind of power and drama. Um, I, I think at this point of like Samson in the Old Testament. You, hopefully you know the story, Judges chapter 14, chase it up later. Um, but Samson is filled with the Holy Spirit, um, which enables him to, to kind of bring down this big building in order to deliver God's people. But more often, right, there's the Spirit's work, Spirit's spectacular work actually is the work of breaking your and my inclination to sin so that we actually can bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit and live out another an other person-centred life. Paul in Galatians chapter 5 puts it this way. 
You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. No, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Later on in Galatians 5, Paul goes on to mention the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Real spirituality, real signs of the Holy Spirit at work and alive in us is that we will see and feel and note and observe the putting to death of those selfish and self-centred things of the flesh. We will see how God actually has freed us and empowered us to, to love people and to love God the way that he's made us to be. That's the time that the prophet Ezekiel kind of looked forward to and got a glimpse of, a time when, when the people's sin and their uncleanness would be washed away and God would put in them a new heart and give them a new spirit where they'd actually want to do what God wants. That's the Spirit's work. Now, there are great stories, right, of people who were set aside and who seemed to be totally gripped by what it meant to live out that reality. There are great stories of missionaries, missionaries that I love to to remember and be inspired by and read of. One of them is Alexander Mackay. Um, He was an Australian missionary serving in Uganda. He lived by this principle, right? Quote, if Christianity is worth anything, then it's worth everything. If Christianity is worth anything, well, it's worth everything. I think he kind of got the point of sanctification, Holiness is that offer in a song that I remember you singing years ago. Um, Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. I could tell you about Micaiah's life, right? It's spectacular, but I'm not going to do it today, maybe another day. But I do want to tell you about another friend of mine. Um, she hasn't been to Uganda and done great things out there on the, you know, around the world. Jen, she's a Christian woman who lives in that city. She shared with me that um, she'd invited a bunch of her um, non-believing neighbours over for dinner Um, after a night where they'd had some really good food and enjoyed a couple of glasses of nice wine where they talked about, you know, which school they'd been to in Adelaide because that's what you talk about when you're in Adelaide and and also mortgages and property prices and such. Um, you know, had a great time. At one point, her daughter came running into the room and one of her neighbours asked her daughter, oh, what's your favourite thing? And her daughter goes, Jesus! And and the mum was like, oh, my gosh, Jim was like, where are they going to think we're kind of crazy Christians and things like that? But it got her thinking, actually. I mean, it got her thinking, right? Was she trying to, to be like her neighbours in order to, to win them for the Lord Jesus Christ? Or was she trying to be like her neighbours in order to kind of just sort of fit in neatly and not make a sort of seen. It's that question of practical holiness, living out our set-apartness that the Spirit is doing in our lives, of being set aside for God's purposes over our purposes. 
she reflected in some detail on that particular night and, and she here are her four reflections. And maybe they'll help you recognise the spirit at work in your life. Four things. Firstly, she said, maybe the main application point of Paul being all things to all people, to win some, for me isn't trying to look and sound more like my neighbours when we sit around the table talking. Maybe it's simply about overcoming the preferences and prejudices that would stop me sitting around the table with them at all. Second, maybe I've been hiding behind all things for all pe- to all people as an excuse for not obeying let your light shine before all others. Thirdly, maybe I should focus a bit more on having dinner with my neighbours more often and focus a little less on trying not to look like the Flanders family when I do. And fourth, maybe I should pay a bit more attention to loving my neighbours and a bit less attention on looking like them. I think what we see there is a woman gripped by the good news of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, striving to be different, wrestling with those kinds of questions. And I think in her is evidence that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and working out his purposes through her. The Spirit sanctifying. Do you have the Holy Spirit? That question, how how do you know if the Holy Spirit is at work in you? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Jesus said, right, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again of the water and of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We thank you, Father, for his power, but also for his humility. I thank you, Father, for the example of the Holy Spirit as he lives and works not for his own glory, but for yours, Lord, and for the praise of your name to the ends of the earth. Father, may we be more like the Holy Spirit. May we be people who are shaped and reshaped by the Holy Spirit, pointing always to the Lord Jesus and to you, that you will receive all the glory. But we pray for those this morning who aren't certain if they have the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you'd give them great reassurance and assurance, work in them powerfully, that they would know you and that they would know that they have a place in your kingdom. Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to honour you in all that we do. Keep working in us by your spirit for your glory and for the joy of our neighbours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.